You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here. Today on the big program, lots to get to, lots to talk about. The New York Times had an interesting article that grabbed my attention. Uh, they were talking about Volkswagen. Uh, the car company and BASF, the Germany's largest uh, or the world's largest chemical company, both German companies. And they were talking about uh, the fact that the, these, these companies were trying to figure out how to deal with China. In fact, the article, just to read right from it, said VW and BASF, which have had extensive investments and sales in China for decades, are among the companies increasingly caught between Beijing on one side and Western governments, shareholders, and human rights groups on the other. Uh, the article goes on to say the scrutiny on German companies is particularly sharp now as European governments grapple with becoming less reliant on China. Now, here's the weird thing, because now you've got the European companies countries going, um... Uh, how how do we deal with this? Because understand, you know, Joe Biden's been saying, hey, you know, we kind of got to do something and has they've actually got some stuff done. And in a bipartisan way, Republicans even even come around to the idea, uh oh, trouble. Uh, the article continues to go on by saying pressure on multinationals has increased in the past months as American customs officials have gained experience in investigating whether Imports from China violate the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act of 2021. Uh, and you ask, what does this law do? Well, this law bars imports of any goods from China that were made with forced labor. You know, slave labor. You know, communist government. Do it or we'll jail you kind of labor. And here's the thing. This is the weird moment that I'm in because understand <laughs> that's the reason these companies went to China. They went to China to exploit cheap labor. They went to China to 
exploit lax regulations uh, on, on everything. They went to China for the Communist Party's cash. And now that finally we, the, the consumer base, we, the voters, are going, hey, you know, um, the, the goods we're getting aren't so cheap anymore. Because that's really what this is about. This is we don't care about the Uyghurs or forced labor or whatever's happening over there. We're Americans. We want cheap stuff. And now that it isn't cheap, and now that the pandemic uh, woke us up to the reality of how just how broken our supply chains are, now there's pressure being put. And about damn time. Because you know you go well. Why the why do we care about the Uyghurs? I don't think most people do. I don't think people know who they are. What they think about is, uh oh, we've lost millions of manufacturing jobs. Uh, we have lost our economic power. We've we've lost the ability to buy cheap junk because it's no longer cheap anymore. And and I couple that with the Financial Times article that uh, that quoted a U.S. official. Uh, Jay Stam Shambaugh is his name. Uh, he's the Undersecretary for International Affairs, and he was quoted as saying that. Uh, we, meaning us, the U.S., are worried that Chinese industrial support policies and macro policies that are more focused on supply rather than thinking about where the demand will come from are both careening towards a situation where overcapacity in China is going to wind up hitting world markets. And you go, yeah, that was always their mercantilist policies. At least, you know, for all the years I've been doing this show, that's what we've been talking about. The fact that China comes into a market, they take it over, and then they raise prices. <laughs> that's what they do. And thing after thing after thing. And understand, corporations around the world were clamoring to China for those short-term gains. China's thinking a 100-year plan. We've got CEOs who care about the next three months. So are we shocked that we took all of our manufacturing into, into China to exploit their labor for short-term gains, and they took over the technology for long-term interests? Are we shocked at this? No. And nor should we be. I've been saying this stuff for years. So to hear, you know, the Financial Times quote somebody like, oh my gosh, you know, um, you know, they're thinking about, you know, uh, you know, making stuff and, you know, where are they going to dump it? This is not new. And understand what this is about. Uh, China is going into Europe, selling their EVs at, you know, what? I, I think I saw a story at 20 to 30% less than what the domestic producers can make. And one article was, you know, quoting a guy in Denmark who said, well, you know, it, it, was, it was, you know, a lot cheaper. <laughs> uh, we went with the, the lower price because that's what happens. And the Chinese understand this. And they are going to overproduce and they are going to flood the market with really cheap stuff. Now you go, but Rick, that's great. It's great for consumers. We consumers are going to be able to have cheap stuff. Haven't we learned? The price of cheap stuff is the jobs that go with it. The price of cheap stuff is the loss of industrial base, of manufacturing capacity, of community support in those communities that those jobs used to give. That's the that's the price. And you wonder, how much worse can it get? Because understand, they are producing EVs like they're going out of style. And we still have people in this country who have their heads up their tailpipes. Um, 
thinking we're going to be on the on the on the oil. No, we're going to have oil cars and gas combustion engines forever. Um, no, that's not how it's going to be. And what's going to happen is if if we don't compete in those spaces, if we don't demand productive capacity return, if we don't have an actual plan, an actual policy on how we're going to to build the next generation of vehicles, we're going to lose. And you can put as many tariffs on this stuff as you want for the short term. Ultimately, long term, if you're not competing in those spaces, uh, there's a problem. And I look at what has happened. And honestly, you have to give the Chinese credit. You really do. Uh, they saw what our, our corporations did to other countries. Uh, you look at what you know, corporate America has done to Mexico. You know, they go in and they give them one bit of technology to be able to work on one aspect uh, of, of, of the car or whatever it is they're building. But never they never get to see the entire elephant. China, from the beginning, said, no, uh, you, you bring your pr production here. Uh, we want to see the technology. We want to be part of it. You have to partner with Chinese majority companies. They were smart about this stuff. And stupid CEOs, again, for short-term profit and gain, uh, they were like, okay. As long as I can line my pocket, screw those workers, screw the communities that 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 those workers live in, and, and screw this country. We want our short-term gains. And now, now you were again starting to see all these stories popping up about, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? Well, what you're gonna do is what Joe Biden's been doing. Policies to ensure that we don't get slave labor products, policies to ensure that um, we have trade on a fair and balanced level and we invest in America. We invest in American workers. We invest in American communities and we reward American businesses for, for producing domestically. Domestic production, domestic consumption. It ain't that hard, folks. Not that hard. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Scott Paul from the Alliance for American Manufacturing going to be here to share some thoughts. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work... For America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So one of the things we've been talking about quite often here on the program is, you know, our trade policies, uh, the, the overweighted power China has globally, 
and kind of what that's going to mean for the future, especially as we, we move to new technologies. I, I have people all the time, especially my, my Red Hat friends, uh, who keep telling me, well, you know, China's going to dominate the EV market. So basically, why do we even try? And that kind of defeatist mentality is, well, is it, one, a struggle for me. And two, you go, well, wouldn't you want to elect, I don't know, people who might not let that happen? Kind of a thought. Uh, but here to share some thoughts on what the future does look like and will we ever learn our lesson. I've asked our good friend Scott Paul to come talk with us. Scott is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org, the website. Scott, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick. Great to be with you. So, you know, I get this frame a lot, and I'm sure you get it as well. You know, the China, they've, they've, they're dominating the EVs. They've got the batteries. They've got the minerals. You know, basically, we've done all the investment over there. Uh, so why why even bother? Because they're gonna they're they're overproducing. They've got all this stuff. Why even bother? Yeah, yeah. I I guess that's the easy way out, right? Is to pretend like we live in a bubble and that's not going to impact us in any way. But the reality is that we have seen when China gets engaged with this government, with the Communist Party, pouring billions, hundreds of billions of dollars into an industry. What happens is they build up market share. Uh, you know, they'll make more than half the world's stuff in something, and then they'll effectively control the marketplace. And it will squeeze our industry out and shrink it. And so that's fewer well-paying jobs in the United States uh, instead of, you know, more. And, and it also, for a lot of critical stuff, um, they have the concentrated innovation, technology, worker skills, capital investment, very much boosted by, again, the Chinese Communist Party. And it hurts us when we're trying to build up industries, say, in a lot of sophisticated electronics or in next generation power. And whether you are concerned about climate change or not concerned about climate change or you're going to hold on to the uh, to the uh, internal combustion engine for as long as you possibly can. The reality is that in 10, 20, 30 years, there's going to be increasingly more electric vehicles on the road. And there's only two questions, how fast that happens and who's going to make them. Right. And we're not making them. That means that basically the Fords, the GMs, the uh, Jeeps, the Chryslers, and then all of the the other companies that have invested in the United States, even the Teslas, uh, you know, are going to shrink. And, and that means fewer jobs, fewer innovation, a smaller middle class. Uh, and if you think about all the stuff that goes into a car wreck, it's not just the assembly, you know, it's the battery or it's the tires, the glass uh, and all the parts. And, and that supports millions of jobs across the country as well. And so that will have a tangible impact on communities. And we've seen, we've seen what waves of deindustrialization have looked like. Yeah. And they've been awful. People die earlier. They get divorced more. Our politics get more radical and unstable. You know, there's, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens out of all of this. And so... Fortunately, I think we got to wake up and see the lesson. We're doing that with one element, semiconductors, for instance, where we're trying to build back up the industry. But we have to be very on guard on autos because China has such a massive head start on this. And its government has invested such massive amount of 
money and you know they don't have the same labor conditions you know they use slave labor for parts of the supply chain and all of that and so there is an uneven playing field here and i'm on like high alert about this because i think this is an existential threat to a big swath of american manufacturing well, no it's it's enormous and it's you know stuff we've been talking about for years you know i was just reading an article yeah. from the over at the financial times that you know the u.s has warned china against dumping uh and you know of course they've built up all of this supply of electric vehicles and you look at what's happening in europe i'm reading stories almost every day of how the the chinese evs are are going to dominate that market because one they're not protecting themselves and two, the, the prices are just obscenely cheaper. So if you give consumers the choice between, yeah, I'm going to buy the local domestic product, but it's going to be 30% higher, that's not even close to a competition. And, and no. this is where, you know, having the Chinese communist government spending so much on this and using exploitative labor, this is where we're, this race to the bottom continues to happen. And this idea that, you know, this is new is, is just, it's farcical. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's exactly right, because we saw this when China entered the World Trade Organization, even a little before with things like garment and textile, kind of the very, you, you know, the, 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 the very uh, less, more labor intensive, less capital intensive types of manufacturing had already started to shift. But it got turbocharged uh, when we opened up more trade relationships. And we saw it happen with steel. We saw it happen with glass. We saw it, it happen with all sorts of advanced technology products. And so, you know, people, if they buy an Apple product, it says designed in California, made in China. And the problem with that is that that may be very good for Apple shareholders and other folks like that and, a, and some engineers, but it has wiped out the middle class. It has completely wiped out the ability to have those well-paying jobs. And, you know, it takes a lot of work to claw that back. And, and we've seen, and I know you've covered this, just what a heavy lift it was just for one simple aspect of all of this, which was the semiconductor chip and how much resources we're gonna, we're gonna invest in that and, and the, the sanctions we have to impose on China and everything else that we need to do just to lift up that because there's semiconductors in just about everything that yeah. we use today and so we we have a we have a lot of work to do and this is going to take a singular focus but pretending pretending like it's not happening like there will never be fourteen thousand dollar eleven thousand dollar evs made in china that end up in the united states and considering about what the consequences that are, are going to be for communities that depend on auto jobs is 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 real neglect and we're going to end up with another wave of deindustrialization that's going to be brutal. No, and it's frightening uh, where this could lead us. But you know, here's the thing. You know, we've been talking about this for for decades. I mean, this isn't new. And yeah. you know, you look at what's going on. You know, there's. I've been reading a couple of stories on you know German companies looking to 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 divest from China because of of labor abuses. And you know, and I read this and I go, but. That was the whole reason you went there. You went to China for the cheap, exploitable labor. You went yeah. there for the lax environmental regulations. You went there for the Communist Party, you know, sweetening the pot with 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 whatever you wanted. Uh, and now we're supposed to, you know, be oh look at how wonderful you are that you're you finally grown a conscience. I'm struggling with this because all of those reasons are why they went there. The greed is what brought them there. 
Uh, and to have them now say, well, now we care about labor abuses and human rights. I don't know. I'm struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. It's a we should not feel good or sorry for any of these corporations because they made their own bed, Rick. They totally made their own bed on this. They knew exactly what they were getting into. And then they're like they're saying to governments, well, you're putting us in a bind because you have these this aluminum and these parts that we get from Xinjiang, which are certainly made with forced labor. But the Chinese government pretends like this doesn't happen. And they're telling us, if you say anything about it, we're going to keep you out of our consumer market. Uh, and so we feel really conflicted about this. W one of the few good and bipartisan things that we've seen over the last couple of years coming out of our own Congress was something called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which actually b basically presumed that anything coming out of that region in China was made with forced labor. Um, and, you know, the law has a has a long way to go in terms of enforcement. But we've seen like VW has a boatload of cars waiting to get into the United States because they haven't been able to establish that those vehicles weren't made with forced labor. And now uh, VW and other companies are saying, well, maybe we ought to pull out because the EU is considering the same thing as well. And it's losing access to big lucrative consumer markets that has driven this. It's not because these companies suddenly grew a conscious conscious. They, they, they didn't uh, yeah. at all. Yeah, well, again, it comes back down to policy. And this goes back to, you know, where I, I, I look at electoral politics. I've got my red hat friends who view Donald Trump as the savior of of industrial policy. And and he's going to bring jobs back and all of this that we heard in 2015, 2016. And we had, you know, weeks, you know, during his presidency where they did a lot of talking about it, not a lot of doing. And you've got, you know, my, my blue hat crowd who's looking at Joe Biden, who doesn't talk about it as often as I think he should, but actually something of an industrial policy uh, that is, right. you know, as you pointed, bringing some of these jobs back. But even they, the blue hat crowd, are angry that we're subsidizing corporate America to bring those jobs back. So it seems like it seems like we're screwed because nobody wants to do what needs to be done to bring manufacturing back in a way that's going to make us globally competitive with China. Yeah, let the invisible hand do it. I'm sure that it'll take it right this way. So, yeah, we, that never happens. You know, it's a it's it's a theory in a textbook. In the real world, you have to have skin in the game, and at least the Biden approach is much more holistic than what Trump tried to do. Trump was just like, well, we'll put up tariffs and everything will come back. And it, and it, it as much look, I'm a trade hawk. But it doesn't work that way. You have to make the investments in your own economy and you have to understand that unlike building an app where basically you can have an AI software do that for you, there's no other capital investment that you have to make. If you're actually making something, you need the machine tools, you need the skilled labor, you know, you need the supply chain, you need a lot of upfront money to make that happen. And you don't have a lot of banks willing to lend that. And so in a lot of ways, you have the federal government coming in and addressing a market failure. And, and the thing about the Biden approach that I think too many progressives forget is that, you know, these resources do have a lot of strings attached to them in terms of worker voice or environmental protections or returning it to the community or investing in workers to upskill as well. And so there is, the, the, you know, these companies do have 
some skin in the game. And there's no question these are big numbers that are being thrown around. There was just a $1.5 billion uh, investment made in a semiconductor factory in New York State. And so these are big numbers, but that's exactly what it takes to regain some of the territory that we lost. And in semiconductors, we used to make almost one out of every three semiconductors in the world. And now we make less than 10% of the semiconductors. And we consume a whole bunch. I mean, yeah. we consume a whole bunch. And so just trying to get that up is going to take some scale. But when you think about all the people that are going to make good wages and return that money to the community and then the types of manufacturing ecosystems that will attract into the United States, it's going to more than pay off. Uh, it's it's going to be an amazing bet. And I, I hate to use Tesla as any sort of a shining example for a lot of things, but there was some energy department invested money invested in Tesla. And look at the returns that has had. Yeah. I mean, you have a world beater uh, in EVs right now, and I don't agree with a lot, a lot of stuff that they do, but they're a competitive company. And that was thanks to an initial federal investment to help jumpstart it. No, and look, this is this is smart policy in my view. It's the use of 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 the the government as a backstop to help compete around the world. It's kind of what it's supposed to do. It's kind of why we why we have it, which is weird because you know, I have the people who used to be the free trade crowd, uh, when, when the the most vocal free trade crowd have now seemed to move towards the protectionist angle even more than I would be. Uh, look, I'm a protectionist. I say this all the time. Uh, when I leave my house, I lock the door. I'm not an isolationist. I didn't build a moat around my house, but I do I do lock the door when I leave. And I think having smart policy and smart uh, things that ensure that no one comes and steals all your stuff is probably not a bad idea. Maybe we should reconsider. Yeah. Yeah. It's just common sense. I mean, because too often, and this is the, this is the opposite of what you do. We were literally handing the keys to the front door. No, we were moving uh, the stuff for us. <laughs> no, this is, this is the part that, this is the part that I'm struggling we were, we with. We were loading up their cars. Yeah. And we were paying <laughs> them to do it. Yeah. 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 That was our, that was the combination of our corporate tax policy, our, our free trade policy and then the way we skewed capital versus labor and then look the other way when it came to things like human rights or workers rights or uh, environmental conditions and how things were yeah, made we got cheap stuff and, Scott. So, yeah it's not a surprise that we've ended up where we are we have to make up this long lost ground because we 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 did the opposite of of reasonable protection it's like we 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 gave away the keys we loaded up their car and we paid them to do it, basically. And then, and as, as you were we talking about a moment class. ago, we basically changed society for them. Uh, you know, I saw a yeah. thing on Facebook the other day. A friend posted, should we bring shop class back to schools? And my response was, we should have never let them leave. The shop class should have never been out of the schools. We should be training every kid to be able to swing a hammer, at least at some level of competence, because you're going to do that at some point in your life. And then we should have programs for people who want to make things. But because yeah. we deindustrialized, because we followed, you know, a very bad neoliberal trade policy, we got to a position where we're, we're now debating whether we should bring school shop class back to school. I mean, it's crazy. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, you know, the examples of this, of, of where it can be successful are great. And we, we have a, uh, a new kind of documentary movie that's premiering in Cleveland next week, but it follows around the lives of some new steel workers. And a couple of the examples were extraordinary where they came from careers that were basically minimum wage. They got a little bit of training. They got into the steel mill, um, you know, making like $80,000 a year with, with good benefits. And so the camera follows them around and they've bought homes. They go shopping at the mire. They, but they're, they're part of the, the consumer culture in the United States. They're giving back and they feel very secure because they have these opportunities to, to work in a middle-class job. And when we de-industrialized, we deprived every American, brown, black, white, rural, urban, of that opportunity. So yeah. it, it's I'm glad we're rediscovering it. We have a long way. We've just started on this road back. We've got a long, long way to go. And Scott, as always, I appreciate you sharing your knowledge, your expertise, your insight, always good stuff. And I look forward to talking to you again real soon. Great to be with you as always, Rick. Thank good, you. Good stuff. Our good friend Scott Paul. I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, sh- let's start with that. Should shop class be back in schools? Because if we're going to do all this building, if we're going to rebuild America, if we're going to re reinvest in the country, shouldn't we have people you know able to do that? Email me, Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. For our free speech audience, thanks so much for tuning in. For our radio affiliates across the country, we're going to take a quick break. Back after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. You know, I was looking at reporting about the Ohio Republican uh, Senate candidates held their second of three debates at the University of Findlay in Findlay, Ohio. And look, they're all trying to out-Trump each other and, and all on the red hat, blue hat, you know, clearly all very, very red hats. But one of the things that caught my attention is they were asked, they were asked directly, um, you know, if if they, they supported a minimum wage increase, which none of them did, or if they supported a minimum wage at all. And interestingly, no one, none of them, none of the three of them, uh, the guy who owns the professional basketball team, uh, the guy who's a, uh, a a car salesman, and the guy who's the Secretary of State, none of them, you know, thought a minimum wage was something that they could support. And it's, 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 you know, it's who they are. And this is what I've been saying for a long time. You know, why are we surprised when Republicans tell us who they are? Because they've been telling us this for a while. Remember, you go back to the 2012 primaries. Ross Perot was very clear. Um, you know, we're against the minimum wage increase. We should be against the minimum wage. If an employer wants to, you know, pay a buck an hour and there's someone desperate enough to take that job, they should be allowed to do it. And it's what we've been talking about on this program for years. This idea of the return of, of liberty of contract, the return of the Lochner era to where if if you're hungry enough, if you're desperate enough, if you're poverty, if your kids are starving enough that you're willing to work in deplorable conditions for desperate wages, that's your right. There should be no one that interferes between you, the almighty individual, and corporate America. There should be no way to level the, the, the playing field. There should be no, because you are the ultimate arbiter. This is how the theory goes. You have the ultimate ability to say no. And you go, you know, for a handful of people, that's probably true. For the vast majority of working people, you're taking what wages, you know, the old Huey Lewis song, I'm taking what they're given because I'm working for a living. This is that. And, and again, you know, you go down the list of what we've been talking about uh, over, the, over the last several years of the fact that Republicans have been pushing on, on the state level, you know, all of their no rights at work you know, agenda. You know, 13 years ago today, I'm sleeping on the floor in Wisconsin uh, as you know, Governor Scott Walker and the Republicans are ramming through Act 10. And the beginning of what was the next real big wave of anti-worker assaults in this country. Because after that, you know, Wisconsin became a no-rights-at-work state, and then others followed. And, you know, Wisconsin was the testing ground for a lot of that, hor- that, that next wave of horrible policy. And I'm looking at Iowa as, you know, maybe Iowa, the, the, the real extreme stuff that's happening there. You know, maybe that's the you know the next testing ground. Uh, I don't think so, but maybe. And you know, I, I this minimum wage thing is is kind of a big freaking deal, because if they get the ability to push back on child labor laws, which they're doing all across the country, if they have the ability to say no, you can't, you as an employee and an employer, you can't come to an agreement. No, no. This is the bizarre thing. Walk with me, if you will, on this. This is really the twisted part of this. On one hand, 
on one hand, they're saying, you know, there should be no government interference between a worker and their employer on the wages. You know, there should be no minimum, no government interference whatsoever, nothing. No government interference in setting the wage, no. So there will be no artificial minimum wage, which is pathetically low. No one could live on it. But, but hey, there should be nothing. If you're desperate enough for, to work for a buck an hour, that's your right. That's your liberty. But on the other hand, um, if you and your employer want to agree on a security clause to make sure that everyone you know, in that workplace you know, is a member of the union and pays into the union to fund the collective bargaining activities. Uh, you don't even have to be a member. You got to pay fair share dues. Even if you wanted that kind of security agreement, no, that's illegal. That's a violation of our of our rights to screw over workers. I mean, think about that for a minute. Think about how you have to juggle your belief structure to be a Republican. As where you know, me as as a working class guy, I just want people's lives to get better. I want to make sure that every kid has has food on the table. I want to make sure there's a house over, a roof over people's heads. I want to I want to believe that that we can in the wealthiest country in the history of civilization move in a direction that ensures that everyone truly does have a right to work. And that isn't, you know, this this farcical nonsense that we hear, well, you know, we're going to protect your paycheck by screwing over all of your coworkers so that you can get something for free. I'm in the favor of there should be a right to work. Every person who wants a job should be able to get one, whether that be in the private sector or in the public sector. Because if the private sector can't, or as I've said a million times, more likely won't create enough jobs for people, the public sector has got to step in and do some of that. And there's a lot of work to be done. There is an awful lot of work that should and can and must be done that we're just just not doing because, well, we haven't made the commitment to it yet. Uh, I've said before, and this is where I get into trouble with my liberal friends, I'm against uh, welfare programs. As a kid who had to use food stamps, uh, there's nothing more degrading and and humiliating. Uh, I believe that, that we do away with those handout programs and we come up with jobs programs. Because I do believe there is there is a, there's some therapeutic qualities to work. Now, as I said, the private sector is not in the business of creating jobs. No matter how many times politicians tell us, you know, we're given tax breaks to create jobs, nonsense. No matter how many times we hear this philanthropist billionaire, he's he's a job creator. No, uh, he uses people to enrich himself. That's that's the private sector mentality. You working people. You're simply, well, negatives on the balance sheet. You're, you're the impediment to profit. Whereas the public sector has a, a different goal. Get good services. Help people. Create an environment where people can live, thrive, and survive. Um, there's a place for both. There's a healthy balance that we're just not getting yet. Because understand, if we were to solve that, again, I talk about this quite often. The idea of every problem has a solution. We could we could figure them out. If we can put a guy basically in a refrigerator on the moon, we can solve any problem before us. You just have to have the political will and the want and the, and the 
the minds to do it. We just don't have that because every problem turns into a political issue. And once it becomes a political issue, there are vested interests on both sides for and against it. So solving problems is never, never as important as, as, as keeping it an issue. The solution is never more important than the issue itself. Because, again, people stake their political careers on it. You know, abortion was a, was a huge one. Republicans are finding out now what happens when, oh, you don't have that to run on anymore? Uh, you know, thousands of people lost jobs. Thousands of people, you know, lost their, their meal tickets, and they're, they're bummed. And the one issue that kept their voters in line, gone. Now they got to go with something else, and they've found another issue. Trust me, they always do. But you look at the immigration thing. Clearly, Republicans don't want to solve that problem. They need it as a, as a political campaign issue, and they do masterfully at it. And this is where I, I frust I'm frustrated with the red hat, blue hat stuff, because as long as we keep thinking in those frames, as long as we keep on this line, working people are going to lose. You ask working people, and I've done this, Hundreds, if not thousands of times. Are you in favor of the minimum wage? All of them say, yeah. Should we raise the minimum wage? Yeah. Why haven't we? Well, uh, uh, don't know. Because, well, it's not a priority for the people who are in our halls of power. And who are those folks? Who Who's stopping? Let's use the minimum wage. And this is where I've gone. It's been Republicans every step of the way the people who don't believe in it. So for me, as a working person, how can you vote for someone who fundamentally doesn't, on any level, agree that there should be a minimum wage if, and, and certainly not increase it if you're a working person? Because understand, most working people don't work for minimum wage. That is true. The vast majority of working people don't. But what... what corporate America understands is if you raise the minimum wage up to 12, 15 bucks an hour, 18 bucks an hour, what that means is the people who are making 12, 15, 18 bucks an hour now, which is unfortunately a large number of people in this country, that means those people making 12, 15, 18 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour, 25 bucks an hour, they're going to want to bump. And they're going to want a big bump away from 725, like from that, that same distance. So that $20 an hour job, now you might have to pay somebody, you know, 27, 28. That's what they're, that's what they don't want. So they're more than happy to, to look down on a segment of working people, the working poor, and sacrifice them off. Because they know that everyone along the way who is struggling, this is the part that blows my mind. You know, my, my kid came back from one of the big farm uh, show complex uh, events recently, and he was talking about, you know, the, pe the person that they're with was complaining about inflation. And I said, yeah, inflation's, you know, hitting everybody. But, you know, hey, if you were a member of a union, you could have negotiated for higher wages. You could have had it in your contract, inflation adjustment colas, uh, that would, would boost that up. Because if your wages are keeping up with inflation, you're not really feeling the hit. If you're someone who hasn't gotten a raise in 10 years, yeah, you're getting you're getting socked by inflation right now. It's 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 killing you.
And think about the person who is working for minimum wage or just above minimum wage. On the federal level, they haven't seen a raise in 14 years. Where I live in Pennsylvania, haven't seen one in, what, what, 18 years? 18 years. Yeah, holy, wow. Think about what that has done to working families at the bottom end of the scale. And are we surprised that then you look at the fact that uh, the distribution of wealth in this country is in the hands of such a few people? That the amount of wealth that that working people have is is virtually no, nothing compared to the top one percent. That unless you're part of that that hyper one percent, you're well, you're you're poor, and you're struggling to make ends meet, and also looking at the person behind you. And this is the part that that blows my mind. How is it that we look at the people behind us and go, well, you know, they're the problem. Uh, you know, they're, they're not, they're fill in the blank. Uh, they're not working hard enough. They're not doing enough. They're, we hear all of those. But the reality, the reality is the, the mass numbers. I mean, just the enormous amount of wealth that goes to our top 1% is, well, wow. It's, it's just, it's outrageous. And it's getting worse year by year. And what's happened is it's it's all because we've we've pursued tax code changes. We've pursued all of this redistributive policy that that puts you know wealth into the hands of the very few. And where does it come from? It comes from the work of well everybody else. And the frustrating part of me is we don't seem to to grasp that very well. I mean, I can show you the the, the graph of, you know, how, how little wealth the bottom 50% of this country has uh, and how much the top 1% has put in their pockets. And it would blow your mind. But we still have been trained to believe, well, you know, they work hard for it. I'll tell you this. Uh, I, I In the hard work, the actual hard work department, I'll take a fast food worker over one of our billionaires in the hard work department. Uh, I don't think Donald Trump has ever had a callus. Maybe, maybe swinging the golf club, maybe playing with his sticks. Uh, but I don't think he knows what the hard day's work is. Never, I don't think he's ever ever had to, to break a sweat working. I don't think he's ever had to worry about how he's going to put a, keep a roof over his head or put food on the table or new shoes for the kids. I don't think he's ever worried about that. That's why I guess it's shocking to me that we're we're in a moment where that's the guy that that some believe is the working class hero. And I guess the part that the what I'm struggling with. You know, my conversation a minute ago with Scott Paul. The wealth class knows how to how to throw chum in the water and pit us against each other. They've done a masterful job. And as I pointed out to Scott, you know, I I'm watching this debate of should we bring shop class back uh, into schools? And the answer is absolutely without question. Should have never been out of, should have never been taken out of schools. The deindustrialization of this country did much more damage to our education system, to our society than, than I think most people can, can grasp. And as a country, we need policies that are going to, that we're going to skill up. 
Uh, we need people who do know how to take a chunk of steel and turn it into something. People who know how to take a pile of lumber and turn it into something. Sadly, too many of those jobs are gone. Uh, we need to make sure that young people see a future in that. Look, you know, I was told, my, my grandfather told me that if, uh, look, if, if you become a truck driver, you'll be a failure. That was their mentality. You got to do so much better. What they were sold is the only way that you're going to be a success and happy is you get the corner office, you wear the white tie, the white shirt, and the tie, and you make a huge amount of money because that was their, their vision of what success was. That's what they were sold. But when you stop and think about it, the, 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 the economy that they built for themselves is the one we should be fighting to get back. When I was a kid, you got those skills, you went to work. You 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 made good money. I had friends who came out of high school, uh, out of machine shop class, uh, and you know went right into a machine shop that that fed into the auto industry and were making you know at the time you know fifteen, eighteen, twenty dollars an hour in the in the mid eighties, which it would be you know like like thirty five to fifty bucks an hour today. With benefits, with you know, healthcare and retirement, and not not that crappy 401k stuff, but an actual defined benefit pension, and you know, you know, vacation and sick days and all these things that at that time we took for granted as what was what was expected. That was the norm, and corporate America has has trained us to go. No, no, you got to have skin in the game. Got to have one of those 401ks that you contribute to. What we need, clearly is we need to be be pushing back and, and saying what kind of a society we, we truly want. And I guess it, the bottom line of this for me is simple. Uh, we've got to be looking at the issues, the problems that we have, and look to people who have real solutions, not just finger pointers who are going to go, hey, there's a problem over there. Hey, you know, it's their fault. But actually with real solutions. And sadly, sadly, uh, the Republican Party is void of any real solutions or ideas on, well, unfortunately, how to do anything. I want to hear your thoughts, though. Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Grab the podcast. We'll take a quick break. Right back. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1868. That was the day that the governor of California signed into law the eight-hour workday. The law was the result of a strong organizing effort led by California's trade unions. The call for the eight-hour day had gained traction across the U.S. labor movement after the Civil War. In the San Francisco area, the Carpenters Union helped lead the effort. Other trade unions soon joined the cause. They held a parade in June of 1867 that saw more than 2,000 laborers marching in the streets. The marchers were organized in order of when their union local had adopted the eight-hour platform. Ship joiners, bricklayers, lathers, and more joined the carpenters in a public demand for a standardized workday. The trade unionists also organized politically. They backed candidates to the state legislature that supported the eight-hour cause. 
their efforts got results. An eight-hour bill was introduced. Sadly, it excluded agricultural workers, but the bill was passed and was signed into law. In San Francisco, the trade unionists celebrated their hard-fought accomplishment. Workers from Oakland sent representatives to join the parade. The law went into effect 60 days after it was passed. But like many of these early laws regulating wages, hours, and conditions, the law did not include the mechanism for enforcement, leaving an opening for employers to skirt the law. Soon after its passage, an economic depression further impacted enforcement, as hard times led many workers to take jobs that violated the law. Despite the legislative victory, the battle for the eight-hour day had not been won. The labor movement had to continue its fight for eight hours for work, eight hours for rest and eight hours for what we will. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. So as we've been talking about, you look at, at Republicans-led states doing everything they can possibly do to stymie workers organizing, to, to keep them to keep themselves poverty states. I mean, I look at I look at Georgia. Georgia right now is moving a piece of legislation, Senate Bill 6, Senate Bill 362, uh, something that their governor uh, you know, Kemp, you know, Brian Kemp wants desperately, uh, completely backed by him. What what Senate Bill 362 would do, it's in the House right now for debate. I have no I have no uh no hope that it it doesn't it doesn't make it through. But what it does is it will create a situation in Georgia where if we know there's a lot of money going into creating uh, manufacturing jobs. Thank you, Joe Biden, for incentivizing reshoring of manufacturing. States are being being you know kind of pushed into to compete with each other, uh, giving incentives to these companies. Go, hey, come to us. You know, take that federal money, yeah, sure, but then come to us and we'll give you more. So there's the fight between the states. And Georgia, I know rights at work state, is saying that uh, what they want to do is say to employers, if you come to our state um, and you take money from us, we we mandate that you do not recognize a union even if 100% of your employees want it, you do not recognize a union without a formal secret ballot election, which gives you time to then beat up on the employees and, and fight back and win. Um, here's the thing that gets me. Now, understand, this is not just Georgia. Uh, Tennessee passed this this kind of bill last year. Um, other states are, are looking at it because this is one of the, uh, the ALEC Ideas. This is one of the model legislations from the American Legislative Exchange Council, as I get it. Uh, they're pushing this. And it's it's because, quite frankly, it's because President Biden has said, look, if you're going to take federal money, you've got to respect right, workers' rights. If you're going to take federal money, you're going to have to make sure that those jobs that are being created actually make people's lives better. And this, again, is one of those moments where you go, there's, 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 two very different view worldviews. There's the Republican worldview of screw you working people, you don't get you don't get what you want. And there's the Democratic view of no, we want to use the money that we're using, that we're we're investing to make lives better. 
And we know that lives get better when we create more union jobs. The more union jobs there are, the better wages people earn, which, you know, selfishly means you're going to pay higher taxes, which means more money to go into the state and local governments, all that stuff, that's that 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 snowballing up. Uh, we know that union workers have much, much higher rates of, of health insured, being health insured and retirement security. Uh, we know that, which means which means that people aren't going to use social services as much. Um, if Walmart, see, this is this is my thing. You know, you look at at the Walmart of the world, and then you compare them to the Costcos of the world. You know, how many how many employees at Walmart? What percentage of the employees at Walmart, um, you know, have to ask for food stamps or or uh, health health care assistance or uh, LIHEAP or or school lunch programs or or any of that stuff compared to the Costco workers? Who, who earned much, much considerably higher rates because uh, a large portion of their employees are unionized. And they're a company that says, we want to keep people, and so we're going to treat them with dignity and respect so that the rest of them don't unionize. Um, so I look at this, and I look at this Georgia bill that is going to pass, and they want this to go to the Supreme Court because there's the other part of this where you've got employers who are now going, you know, that that National Labor Relations Act, that's unconstitutional because they want all of this to go where? They want all this to sit in front of the Supreme Court so that the Trump Supreme Court. Now, remember, working people, you wanted this. Remember, working people, you voted for Trump. You wanted the Trump court because they're going to go get those fill in the blacks. What they and I, I've been saying this all along. What they really want is they want to undo the 20th century. They want to roll back all of those protections for workers. They want to roll back all of those opportunities to fight for better wages, hours, conditions. They want to roll back all those safety, all those regulations, along with, of course, putting women back in the kitchen and blacks back in the fields and, and gays back in the closet. Yes, they want that too. But it's all about the money, man. It's all about creating a desperation class of workers who are who are who are grateful, know their place. And are we surprised that it's the southern states doing this? Are we surprised that it's the moneyed interests who are who are, who are pushing this off? No, we shouldn't be surprised at all. Not even a little bit. I mean, stop and think about this for a second. They're saying if you take any state money, you cannot. Remember, these are the people who want smaller, less intrusive government. Get government out of our lives. These are people who are saying if you take any of our money, we're, you have to, you have to hold a union election. You have to go after those workers. It's pretty remarkable when you stop and you think about it. But not surprising. Because, again, it's who they are. It's who they've always been. And as I say all the time, Republicans hate working people. Look at what they do. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Questions, comments, something on your mind? Rick at the ricksmithshow.com. If you miss any portion of the program, make sure you grab the podcast. Amazing stuff, my friends. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick 
at Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. Until next time, this has been the Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.